Great question. Good morning. As Brooke said, the weather is absolutely made to order for our time together today. As we, as we break formally into, into Lent, the season of really just um, contemplating our sin, not to wallow in our sin, not to navel gaze, not to forget that Christ has come and paid for sin and is resurrected from the grave, has defeated sin, um, has defeated death by dying. Um, and is now reigning and will return, not to forget those things at all, to keep them in our sights, but also just to especially look at, into the places that we haven't surrendered, places that God is pushing on, places of pain often and suffering in ourselves or in others, and to learn how to lament well as Christians. So we're walking through the book of Lamentations together during this five-week time leading up to Good Friday, um, where we'll look at the cross with with a particular focus, and then and then Easter Sunday, where we celebrate Christ's resurrection. So this is a book, this Lamentations is a book devoted to grief and suffering, and it completes God's perfect word in so doing. Without this book, we wouldn't have a perfect word from God. We wouldn't have a completed canon, but we do. Um, so there's a special place for lament, lamenting our sin, lamenting sin in those around us, lamenting evil um, in the world and a cracked creation. So let's dive in together. The, um, I want to give you a little bit of context, and then we'll We'll jump into a couple points together. Um, so a little bit of historical context. We, Lamentations is a funeral service, in short, for the death of a city, for the city of Jerusalem, which was the capital of Israel and of Judah, the southern tribe, which was all, at this point, all that was left in 587 B.C. The, nor- the ten northern tribes had already been taken away and integrated, um, genocidally sort of obliterated, as it were, by the Assyrians and uh, 150 years previously, and now we have Judah, and the Babylonians have come from the east from Babylon, and they have just decimated. After, I think, an 18-month siege, um, they've finally broken into the walls of Jerusalem and just destroyed, absolutely destroyed the city, and deported most of the people and left the poor to sort of scratch around. Um, So it's a funeral service for a city. Um, You know, the book starts... um, as, jo- as Brooks read, how lonely sits the city, verse 1, that was full of people, but not anymore. Um, so verse 1 just plops us squarely into this reality and just sits here in the midst of the suffering, calling out to God, not forgetting about God, but saying, God, have you forgotten us? You did this. Even though we did it to ourselves, you still, you're sovereign, you did this. How do we make sense of this? Really describing with great detail, their pain, and we're going to talk about about that. So Judah's condition, if you want to read more about the sort of the history, this is kind of an existential cry in the middle of the suffering. If you want to read, read more about the historical data, uh, the end of 2 Kings 24 and 25 gives you that. In, in verses 6 and 7 of 2 Kings 25, we find out the king's sons uh, were murdered in front of him. So they were brought right in front of him. He was chained. He was made to watch his son's murder, and then his eyes were gouged out. So it was the last thing that he saw, just forever, right at the forefront of his mind. Um, this is sort of the tenor of what the Babylonians did. Um, rubble, fire, deportation, like I said, the poor uh, scratching around, people roaming the streets, scavenging for food. Um, in some of my research, I came across a comparison. In Isfahan, uh, I have a friend 
in Edinburgh from in Edinburgh, Scotland, from Isfahan, uh, Iran, in 722, 1722 rather, there was a six-month siege of the city uh, in Persia, Iran, modern-day Iran, by the Afghans, um, and uh, women were handed over or handing over their pearls and jewels for food, and that's we, we actually find that this is exactly the state that Judah's in, um, and that we find described in chapter one. I think of sort of more recently Weimar, or Weimar rather, I should say, Weimar, Germany, um, after the Great War, before, right before Hitler's rise to power. This is one of the things that helped him, created a vacuum for Hitler, a historical curiosity indeed, how this kind of man come to power, uh, risen to power, um, made to rise to power by one of the most enlightened people on earth, but really came to power because Germany was in such a state under the um, Weimar government, the Republic, that... Uh, the economy collapsed completely such that people would put their life savings, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of marks of, of currency into their pictures of them putting all of their life savings into wheelbarrows and, and taking the wheelbarrow full of cash to stores to buy a couple loaves of bread. So this is the picture we have here. The women just giving away all their precious items, all their jewelry, everything they have just to eat. And it gets worse. There's cannibalism, there's rape, there's murder, um, there's slaying of innocent children, there's murder of priests, uh, 2.20, Lamentations 2.20. Uh, the picture we're shown here in these poems is one in which a society is broken down completely. The rich are destitute, the leaders are not respected, priests, prophets, and elders have lost their roles in society. Ordinary men and women cannot function as they should, and God is silent. One thinks of C.S. Lewis's talk of when we pray sometimes, as we're suffering, the, the heavens are as iron or brass. Our prayers just seem, seem to bounce off. The utter meltdown of life as it should be is what the poet is conveying, and he wants God to notice. That's Adele Berlin. Um, the temple's been raised, it's been taken down to its very foundations, and the temple for the ancient people of God, for the Jews, was the place where they met God. It was their expression that God, in the way that he is, exactly outlined through the priest, through the perfect sacrifice, all of which pointed to Jesus Christ, was their conduit to God. It was their way that God came down and met with them, and they were a people of God who met with God, who knew God, who were before God, who was before them. And uh, so the fact that that's been destroyed, and they've been deported out of the land that God gave them to show his favor, not, not earned by them, but given to them by grace, Really, they were questioning, you say in your word that you'll never forsake us. You've covenanted yourself to us. You've said, if I, you know, if I forsake you, I will be forsaking myself, and I can't do that. And yet, it seems like we're completely cut off from you. So can you imagine being in a state where you can't, like everything visually seems like God is saying, I want no more to do with you. Even though they know it's their sin that's brought on this suffering. It was prophesied over and over again. If you forsake me, if you forsake me, I will send you east to Babylon, and sure enough, that's what happens. Um, so really, God has rejected us. Has God rejected us? Is sort of one of the, one of the questions and statements that, that sort of uh, trickles throughout this, this book, this hard book. Um, the medium very much speaks to the message in Lamentations. Okay, so the way that it is, its structure, the way that it's laid out. Okay, so what am I talking about? It's an acrostic, so it's five chapters, and we'll spend five weeks in it. Um, every chapter but the fifth chapter is an acrostic, which means that um, each, each verse or stanza, there weren't verses, but there were stanzas, which have become verses. 
each verse is a letter of the alphabet in the order of the Hebrew alphabet. So the Hebrew alphabet, instead of having 26 letters like ours, has 22. Um, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, so A, B, G are the first three letters instead of A, B, C. And so the first three verses, first three stanzas are, they start with Aleph, then Bet, and then Gimel, and all the way through Z, as it were, all the way through the last letter, verse 22. And that's the way that each of these chapters is, is structured, an extremely precise, known structure um, here in Lamentations in order to write out this scree, this lament, this cry to God. It's a very clinical way of coursing through things that are very hard to put to paper, things that are very hard to articulate. It's the way that I'm sure that I'm getting from A to Z my feelings out, from A to Z the devastation. It's a corpus that provides a vehicle for, for expressing suffering. Um, in, the, in the PhD world, in the writing world, you often hear the phrase, write it clear. Write it clear. So often things aren't clear until you write them out, and that's a lot of what we see here. Lament, lament is a way of working through lamentable things, sin and its consequences. Um, like I said, it's a way to express completeness. There's an A to Z sort of timber and nature to, to this expression in this book. There's a clinical thoroughness. Um, you're coming at suffering from every angle while in the midst of it, where you're not often very objective and you're not often very, your thoughts seem fuzzy, uh, as, as a way to analyze and dissect that suffering and, and, and the insides, too, that are, that are quite nasty. Um, it's the, this, is the, uh, this book is the opposite of just sort of glossing over the problem. It just sits in the middle of it, and it's very instructive to us, and we're going to get into that. Um, if we are never lamenting our sin, and I'm talking to Christians now, to non-Christians as well, to every single human being, but as Christians, I think a lot of times we can sort of misunderstand the Christian life and think that, well, Christ has paid for my sin, which he has. He's finished the work. You are, if you have trusted in Christ, you, are, you stand righteous before God, as righteous as Christ, because you stand in his righteousness. But sometimes we think, therefore, there's no need for me to let God deal with my sin. There's no more resident evil. There's no more need for him to excoriate it, for me to let him show me what is wrong and to have a regular cycle of repentance and of, and of self-introspection and of saying, Lord, show me my sin. But that's not scriptural. It's not true. It's not right. It's not healthy. If we're never lamenting our sin, if, we, if we've never had a dark night of the soul and if we don't have them on a somewhat regular basis, we're probably not living in the way that we ought to be. And if you, as a non-believer, you've not yet trusted in Christ, man. If, if you're here and, and you're hearing this and, and, and you previously, outside of Christ, have experienced a sort of conviction of sin, maybe you don't know what it is, but I know that I've done wrong, and you didn't have a recourse, perhaps, for it. Maybe you just went to the bottle or went to, you know, fellowship with friends or went to working harder or, what, or whatever it is. Um, pornography, I mean, there can be bad stuff, there can be good stuff that we chase, um, none, of it, none of it works. Um, but if you have an impression that, man, I have things that are deeply wrong with me on the inside, that is the, be encouraged, that is the first step toward the solution, which is Jesus Christ. It's where he wants you, and he might be drawing you to him. Um, another thing that this sort of structure does in Lamentations is, that, is it imposes order on chaos. Um, th this is a world of chaos. The world of Lamentations has been disrupted. No order exists any longer in the real world for them. 
But as if to counteract this chaos, the poet has constructed his own linguistic order that he marks out graphically for us by the orderly progressions of the letters of the alphabet. Um, you need, in the midst of the chaos of suffering, you need order to go back to that's already there for you. You need those guideposts, those things that you've driven in that you don't have to think about, the quiet time with the Lord, that schedule with the Lord, whether morning, noon, or night, those, maybe all three of those, those times throughout the day where you pull away, whether you feel like it or not, where you pull away for time, face time with the living God through his word, in prayer, um, having person or persons that you can trust and go to that you meet with on a regular basis. I've committed to this. It's part of my schedule. We come and we talk about our sin struggles. We confess one another. We, we pray together. We read scripture together. We encourage each other. We're honest. Um, having quarterly, Robin and I have invoked sort of quarterly counseling sessions. We go to someone outside this church and he's a professional counselor and a pastor and we just, we just sort of put our stuff out. Um, having those sorts of things rather than you know, not having them and, and then trying to schedule them in the midst of your crap. That's, that's, that's usually doesn't work so well. Sometimes it does, and we've done that before too. Pull the parachute, you know. <laughs> but um, having this structure to help us work through sin and suffering um, in our own lives and in the lives of those that we love that we're, that we're sharing life with. Um, even, you know, workouts, your body, just having, having it as a discipline that you do. Um, sleep not neglecting things, but simple things like that. So um, imposing order on the chaos is one of the things that even the structure of Lamentations teaches us. So very quickly, and then um, we'll get to uh, the necessity of, lament, uh, of Lamentation. So uh, this book, this, sorry, this chapter is halved. So uh, 1, 1 through 11, and then 12 through 22. The first 11 verses are uh, third person, and then it pretty much switches to first person, just to sort of understand the chapter a little better. Um, Jerusalem is, is portrayed as a, a woman that's been ruined by her own sin, it, variously a widow who's to be pitied, but also a whore who, who has whored herself out through her own sin, has prostituted herself, and, and is asking for pity, is, is owning it as well, and is saying, yeah, it's, it's my fault, um, but God, help me. God, help me. Don't you care? Do you care? Um. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorites, he has some good stuff on this. He says this. He translated a, the Bible. It's called The Message. He did, he's written a bunch. He's a pastor. Um, the biblical revelation neither explains nor eliminates suffering. It shows, rather, God entering into the life of suffering humanity, accepting and sharing the suffering. Scripture is not a lecture from God pointing the finger at unfortunate sufferers and saying, I told you so, here and here and here and here is where you went wrong. Now you're paying for it. Nor is it a program from God providing step-by-step step for the gradual elimination of suffering in a series of five-year plans. There's no progress from more to less suffering from Egyptian bondage. He's kind of now taking us through the narrative arc of all of Scripture. From Egyptian bondage back in Exodus, right, to wilderness wandering, Numbers, Deuteronomy, to kingless anarchy, Judges, to Assyrian siege, to Babylonian captivity here, to Roman crucifixion, Jesus, New Testament, Gospels, to Neronian, Domitian, Holocaust, where the rest of the scriptures were finished within that period. The suffering is there, and where the sufferer is, God is. 
Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Christ himself in Isaiah 53 was called a man of sorrows. He came to be with us and to take our suffering upon himself. I was looking, I was just struck for some reason, it it missed me as I was spending time in this chapter this week, but I was struck as Brooks was reading by the verse, the verse in 14. So verse 14, Lamentations 1.14, talks about the transgressions of the people of God um, being fastened together by God, like bundled up and then just set on their neck as this huge weight, an albatross, as it were, on their neck, but on the backside. And all I could think about was Christ bearing that beam up the hill to be crucified for us. Just a God that takes sin so seriously that he took it upon himself. Um, Y'all, of all the philosophies of all the religions in the world, only Christianity, I would wager, takes suffering seriously enough. It also shows us a way out, eventually, of that suffering by entering deeply into it and by showing us that God himself has done that and has conquered death itself. So we'll get there. Let's look at the necessity of lament, the necessity of lament together. Y'all, lamenting our sins and others' sins and their consequences is both good and right, and it can be a path toward healing. An admission that all is, is not right with the world in a way of saying that it is a way of saying it's not okay. Um, it can lead to, this can lead to calling out to God to make it right, as we see in this chapter, to looking at the fact that he has given, that God has given everything to make it right, that he is making it right, and that he is... Um, using us amazingly, astoundingly, to, to help in that process of making things right, but partially by entering into what's wrong, right? Not by glossing over like a speedboat on the waves, over problems, over the sea, the depth of woe that's all around us, but by becoming a people that like our Savior and with our Savior, because he's in us if we've trusted in him, go with him where he has gone, um, not to hell where he went. He did that for us for any who will look to him, but going to the deep places with people, letting him plunge down through the help of others in our community into the dark places that we don't want to look at in ourselves. And we'll talk about how the best sort of lamenting is done in community. Um, But there's a a grieving is a sign of weakness view, and I want to say that's a weak view. But I think it's quite prevalent in in the American church. Leslie Allen says, um, he says, I recall a patient who having undergone a mastectomy she found it difficult to grieve because of her Christian faith. She felt she was letting God down by failing to accept what she perceived as the loss of her womanhood. She thought grief was a sign of spiritual weakness and a lack of trust. It had to be stifled as dishonoring to God. Her grief repressed was not lessened, Alan says. Her fear of owning and expressing it blocked any processing. Lamentations belies such a stoic view. Okay, it just blows that up. Um, Was it not our Lord who said, I am sorrowful to the point of death? One one counselor that uh, my wife came across um, was talking to a woman that was in the midst of of grief after after losing a child, I believe, and she had other children she was tending to, and she just felt like she didn't have time, but she was really coping and and really um, not addressing what she needed to address. And the counselor said, you have to, lamenting and grieving over 
evil and over loss. That's not supposed to happen. It's part of a broken world. Like grieving over loss is so important that you need to block out time for it. You need to schedule time just to grieve. Um, Untended wounds will harden. They're not going to go away. They're going to develop into hard places, tumors in the soul, as it were. Um, And they will harden you, and hard people hurt other people, and they hurt themselves. Wounded people wound people. People who allow the Lord to minister to them sweetly in their wounds heal. Maybe not totally, like Frodo, who still has the, the pain from the Morgul blade, all the way to the very end, right, till he, till he sails west from the gray havens. He heals, but not completely this side of heaven. But the, even that is a pointer toward a better place and toward something new that God is going to do, that he's already started. Um, but people who allow the Lord to minister to them sweetly and their wounds heal, and healed people can heal others. The wounded healer. Um, we're, the wounded healer is not as afraid of entering into people's suffering sometimes caused by sin. Jesus did this consummately. He's an expression, his incarnation, God becoming one of us and entering our darkness, the light of the world, taking it upon himself is the ultimate expression of that. One commentator says, no one is helped by what uh, he calls the bright plastic, I love that phrase, the bright plastic cheerfulness, which tells us to cheer up for everything's going to be okay, buddy. We already know in the moments when we are inclined to think about it, that everything is going to be all right, or else it's not, depending on which side of Christ we're on. But at that moment, it would help if someone were patient and courageous enough simply to share what we are going through. Give us the great honor of paying attention to us. And I might add, to take us and our pain seriously. Again, I'm sorry that you're going to hear a lot about losing children this morning, because we've lost some in, in, in utero. Uh, but but some nonetheless, and it's been painful. Um, and Robin has been in touch. You know, when you lose a child and you grieve somewhat openly about it, you're you're mo- you're often most encouraged, first of all, by God and His Word. But He sends people, He sends people, and He comforts you through a lot of times people that have lost children, and how they've been comforted. And they they are the best comforters. And so we've we've been in touch with a lot of those folks and read things and um, two two young women whom Robin knows that that have both lost children out of the womb. Um, they said, don't, don't be afraid to enter other people's suffering. She said, you're not going to remind me when you're around me and you just you won't mention it. She said, don't worry. You're not going to remind me of something I will never forget. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to. You know, my cousin took his life. Um, and sometimes I'm afraid of mentioning it because I want to talk about it, especially around the, his birthday or whatever. Um, to my aunt and uncle, but and I, sometimes I'm afraid I'll remind them, of course not. They're always thinking about him. And when you mention him, you are telling them I'm with you. I think about him too and I miss him. Let's be that kind of people. Um, but not touching on it, not mentioning it on this huge part of my life seems, it just seems strange and cold, is what the, the, the ladies went on to say. Um, so the necessity of lament, it can be a path toward healing, lamenting. Um, C.S. Lewis's famous words from the problem of pain, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's, 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 it rouses us. It's, it's a check, it, pain is often the check engine light of our souls. 
something, you know, pain is a way of often God getting in and showing us there's something that's been there for a long, long time and you've been passing over it. It's time to deal with it. And perhaps in the life of someone else. Um, pain is our opportunity. Can we look at pain as an opportunity? It's our opportunity for God to expose the cancer, to cut it out, and to heal us. Um, this will at first lead to more pain. It's why we medicate. It's why we run. It's why we don't open up the windows of our soul to others and to the Lord oftentimes. Um, our tendency is going to be to escape, to, to numb the pain with a frozen yogurt and Netflix. Um, but we need to press in. Someone put it like this. Do, you, do we want to be well or do we just want a change of circumstance? It's a great diagnostic, a very simple but penetrating question. Do you want to be well or do you just want your circumstances to change? Do you just want to get out of the heap that you're sitting on? Um, I, wrote, I wrote this uh, when we lost our first child, Tristan. Tristan Joy. Buried her in North Carolina. Um, as water seeps into the fissures of the rock and hardens into ice when freezing weather comes, splitting stone and leaving space behind, so has the grace of God this year filled the shallow places of our souls, hardening and cracking, then leaving deeper pools behind to hold his grace when he is done. It, it makes us more weighty suffering if we allow the Lord to use it. it. It adds gravitas. It makes us more like Jesus, our Lord, who was a man of sorrows, who took our cross upon himself, who entered our pain. It is a sweet, it is an invitation into a sweetness with Jesus that you've never tasted before. The sweetness of fellowship with Christ in suffering. Um, lament, the necessity of lament, it can be a guide to honesty. It often drives us to unvarnished honesty in our prayers. God likes this. It's what he wants. Even in a, wall, a, a raw and a wild cry, God provi- uh, prefers that to, I think, a word that Chris used earlier, which is platitudes, to nice-sounding platitudes that are half-meant and hardly felt. Um, verse, verse 12, is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted. And that note of God's sovereignty and even bringing this pain into the lives of his children, not because he hates them. Hates them equals ignore, not involved. God has brought this pain to expose, to drive away in order to bring back and to heal. It's why he disciplines those whom he loves. Um, And the hope of God's anger, which was point two, uh, is the biggest point, and it's going bye-bye, um, but there's a lot of camping out in that truth. There's a lot of hope in God's anger, in God's anger toward our sin. He hates sin uh, so much that he cannot countenance in those that he loves, and he's going to get rid of it, and he's going to get rid of the evils that it produces. Um, there's a lot of hope in that. He's not going to leave us as we are, but uh, anger is the anger of God is is highlighted in chapter 2, and it's, it's strewn throughout the rest of this book. So we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that. But uh, l- lament is a guide to honesty, to honest conversation with God. Um, you have done it, God. You have done this is, is, is in verse 14, 15, 18, 19. It's all throughout this chapter. It's full force lament. It's not nice talk. You know, this is the way I remember that I talk to God 
more than any other time I can remember when I lost, when we lost our first child, Tristan. Um, and it felt good. I remember how good it felt to scream out to God in unvarnished honesty. It's what God wants. He wants our, he knows what's going on inside. You think, we think we can fool him by nice talk on the outside. No, he knows that he wants us to be honest with him, to pay him the compliment of being honest. Um, and oftentimes pain drives us there. And what I remember, too, is doing, I wanted to do this in community. We had a church, a small group, a, par- a neighborhood parish, as it were. And um, I, want, I knew that there was a tendency to want to be, to pull away and be alone. But I knew that the best thing for us was the body of Christ that God had supplied us. And we didn't even know that parish that well at the time. But I'm telling you, that sealed us in fellowship with them so completely. And, and, it, and it was really the starting point of, of life together with them. And it was so healthy and, and healing for us to be there. And, to, and they shared that burden with us. And they held us up. And they listened to us. And they mourned with us. Um, so I want to encourage us to be a people like that. That when we're going through pain and suffering, when we have sin in our lives, and I'm not saying all suffering comes from sin. It does not. But whether or not it does, whatever it is, whatever the problem, letting it drive us into fellowship with the body of Christ, not away. Okay, it's, you're robbing yourself and Christ's body when you do not do that. I'm not saying there's not a place for individual lament and pulling away. There is a place for that, but we ought not stay there. We ought not stay there. Um, Lamentations assures me that God is in control of my suffering, as I've said, and of all that suffering, evil, um, excuse me, and of all suffering, evil, and sin, and that God cares. He's in control of it, and he cares. Even in this scenario where he's bringing the suffering on his people, he cares. It's so clear that he cares about their suffering desperately. Um, God is in control of my suffering. He's even orchestrating it. Even if I'm to blame for my suffering, God cares about me and my situation. Um, Through the person and the work of Jesus, friends, God is committed to making beauty of ashes, even when the ashes are caused by things that we're doing that are rebellion against him. He will use it. Um, Don't wait to clean yourself. Uh, You cannot do it. Go to God. I mean, the fact that God can use our sin to bring salvation, to bring beauty from ashes, the cross is the best picture of that. The fact that the cross is the empirical proving picture of what how much God hates our sin and how he has used it and through the cross continues to use it to save us to heal us not our sin of course but he uses it um, to pay for it and to um, give us conviction of sin and to cause us to flee to Jesus Christ who is our only savior and not to frozen yogurt Netflix TV spending money working more, whatever it is that we use to numb alcohol, I don't know, good things, bad things, um, good things that are, that are perverted and become bad things because we're looking to them to satisfy us and to soothe us and to medicate us, nothing will make it better. Let your pain and suffering and your sin drive you to Jesus Christ. Um, our suffering can lead us to looking, excuse me, lament, rather, can lead to looking from our idols to the living God. You see this, I don't have time to jump in, to dive in and open this up, unfortunately, but you see this all throughout this book in this chapter. Um, these lovers, these false 
gods, these things that the Israelites relied on in God's place that they were going to, they were looking to for significance and satisfaction, and we have these all over the place in our lives, don't we? They're called false and fleeting and vain. They lose their varnish over and over and over again in this, in this chapter and in this book. Um, verse 19, I called to my lovers, but what? They deceived me. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. All of our false lovers will deceive us. They promise that they can do everything for us. And then they eventually, they don't. They can't sustain us. Um, they can't sustain us. We weren't made to worship them. Um, two extremes, two extremes on, on, on suffering and on lament, um, both of which need to be avoided, is that Christians should not grieve. We've talked about that some. Christians should not lament. Jesus has come. We ought to be a people of smiling joy and, and, and leave lament behind. That's not, lamentation shows us that's not, that's not true. We ought to be a people of deep and abiding joy, knowing what Christ is with us and that he's come to be with us forever and that he's paid the price necessary for us to be right with God. But but he, ha- he finished the work paying for sin on the cross, but, and he's reigning now, but he hasn't yet returned, and the world is still broken. Inside and out, we are broken, and it is broken, and, and we are called to grieve that. Another unhealthy view, though, is the, is the opposite, which is that we should just remain in our grief. We should just remain in it forever. No, we're to face evil, sin, suffering, and loss through grief in order to move beyond them. You know, Lamentations is not the end of the Bible. It's in the middle. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Um, it is the final word, and it is a book that is saturated with the victory of God in Christ and his reign and the fact that he is going to come again and make all things new and that he is making things new preeminently through our sin and our suffering and our, and our letting him shine light in those places in our lives and in the lives of others and entering into those places because he's conquered them and he cares about them. Um, this is one of the greatest ways in which he is working his kingdom out and, uh, until he returns, and then he's going to make all things new. Um, and, and, you know, the Bible doesn't end with lamentations. It ends with a feast. It ends with a feast where Christ says, the first things have passed away, and then he wipes every tear from every eye of his own, and he brings us near, and then he sets the table, and we feast together. Um, that's where we're headed, not here. So it's not the end. Um, you know, lamentations is, is limited, and that's where I'll finish. Um, it's limited. The limits, so the necessity of lament, and then the limits, the limits of lament. Um, grief seems limitless to the one sitting in sorrow. Uh, a commentator says, to grieving eyes, everything around tends to be endued with grief. C.S. Lewis wrote of his wife's death, her absence is like the sky, spread over everything. Again, back to the structure of lamentations, the, the meaning being in the medium. It's an acrostic, and, and the fact that it's an acrostic points to the fact that grief and lament have their limits. You know, um, it's, it's a total sort of forensic way of expressing the grief that they're sitting in, but there's an end. There's a Z to the A. You know, there's an end, and then you start back over again. You can only read over it so many times before you start realizing, okay, th- there's, this is the extent of suffering, and it's not the end. Um, there's, another, there's another reality here. But working through that exhaustively and honestly and allowing God to come into that and, and allowing other people to come into that in the, in the community that God has put us in through his body helps us to get to that realization. There's a place for suffering, period, Z, end, and then we move on, okay? 
Um, and the whole structure of the scriptures points to this. Um, you have Adam and his tragedy and disobeying God in the garden and being thrust out of the garden, replayed through the people of Israel, who are a second, a corporate Adam, as it were, who are given this beautiful land, who are given these promises, who are told to obey God's word, who, like Adam, disobey God's word, who, like Adam, are thrust out of the garden, east of the garden, into Babylon. Um, but then you have Christ, the final word, the sufficient word, who comes, and he, unlike Adam and Israel, as the second Adam and the true Israel, obeys God from the heart, and then gets thrust out. Doesn't deserve it, but why does he get thrust out for us? Because it's what we deserve. He's thrust out so we can be, he's crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. He's put outside of God's love, and, and as it were, okay, it's a mystery, and has the wrath of God for our sin poured out upon himself, and God deals thoroughly with sin and suffering and evil on Christ, in Christ, so that we can be brought in, so that we can be healed, so that we can be made whole. So suffering has an end, and Christ is the final word, not Adam, not Israel. Christ fulfills the narrative arc of Scripture, the promises of God. Um, of course, as I wrap up, I'm going to take us back to Lewis or Tolkien, which one? Um, I want to I give you a quote from Sam Gamgee, the, I think the hero of The Lord of the Rings, and it's, this is from The Two Towers, J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Two Towers. Sam says, it's like, the great, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. And like we said on Wednesday, if you were here Ash Wednesday, you know, uh, I think it was Nietzsche who said, resurrection only happens in cemeteries. You know, the resurrection only happens on the backside of the crucifixion, of the cross. And the death that Christ calls us to is he's made a portal to life. It's the only portal to life that there is. And I would urge you to come to Christ and die to all of your dreams and ambitions and false gods. Um, to know that he professes his love for you and his seriousness about your sins in such a way that he took it upon himself, paid for it, buried it, left it in the ground, and rose to new life. And he is with you, therefore, now, wherever you are, and will take you home to be with him forever. Um, Edna Hong says this. She says, I found only one religion that dares go down with me into the depth of myself. Sorry, that was Chesterton. Edna Hong writing about Chesterton. I'm going to read it again. You don't ever want to misattribute a Chesterton quote to somebody else. Uh, I have found only one religion that dares go down with me into the depth of myself. And then Hong continues, and it is true. No other religion dares to take me down to the new beginning. Hence, Lent is not a tediously long brooding over sin. Lent is a journey that could be called an upward descent, but I prefer to call it a downward ascent. It ends before the cross, where we stand in the light, in the white light of a new beginning. And if you know me, you know that I'm delighting now to finish with words from Tim Keller. Um, I mean, this is the ultimate, right? Tolkien, Chesterton, and now Keller. It's the triumvirate. Um, can't not finish with Keller. Keller brings us into a novel uh, by Fyodor Dostoevsky, one of the greatest Russian novelists of any age, but of the 19th century. And 
um, in, in, his, in his great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, one of us has, has that novel tattooed on his arms, um, he says that um, uh, this atheist character, Ivan, one of the brothers, one of the three brothers, he, even Ivan, this atheist, understood how knowing what is to come helps a person endure present circumstances. He said, I believe that suffering will be healed and made up for, that in the world's finality, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious that will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that's been shed, that it will make it not just possible to forgive, but to justify all that's happened. Keller goes on, I don't want you to think that this talk about glory and about heaven trivializes suffering. In fact, Ivan Karamazov said that this hope is the only worldview that takes our brokenness seriously. Our souls are so great and our suffering is so deep that nothing but this promise can overwhelm it. Glory does not trivialize human brokenness. It's the only thing that takes it seriously. What else could possibly deal with the hurts of our hearts? Your soul is too great for anything but this. Don't you know a compliment when you hear it? And I just want to say, Christ, Jesus Christ, Son of God, is proof that God takes our sin and suffering and evil seriously, deadly seriously. We look no farther than the cross to see that. And that at the same time, it's proof that death and sin and evil do not have the final say. What were his last words on the cross? It is finished, tetelestai. It has been and will be defeated, and the new day will come. Even now, in the midst of your suffering and sin, that day has dawned in Christ, and I urge you to run to him, and let's run to him together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for a hard book that expresses a hard historical reality um, in the raising of Jerusalem and the, ex- the exporting of your people, the deportation of your precious and rebellious people to Babylon. I thank you that it's not the end of the story. I pray that as Chris prayed earlier, you would help us to sit here, not as people without hope, but to learn, to learn about suffering and sin, to take our sin seriously, as seriously as you took it on the cross, um, but also to take our triumph in Christ seriously and the fact that it's not the end, um, that a banquet awaits us. And so now, um, in Christ's name, we go to that banquet to a foretaste of it. In Jesus' name, amen.